Hello and welcome to part two of our two-part series of Cause High Fizz. My name is David Hastie and I'm joined again by Cause Senior Associate Melanie Bond and Cause's CEO, John Denton. In part two, there is an underlying theme and that particular theme, I would say, Mel, is the need for regulatory consistency. That's right, David. In part two, we're going to discuss two areas of controversy in the infrastructure investment market. The first is looking at the role of multilateral development banks and how effective they are at facilitating private sector infrastructure investment. The second thing we're going to discuss is uh, regulation of infrastructure investment. Uh, the period since the GFC has been a regulator's dream. There's been so much regulatory activity in the financial system. Uh, and what lessons are there from this activity for infrastructure investment? Yeah, fantastic, Mel. OK, let's get to it. So we've talked a bit about the role of governments in facilitating infrastructure investment. I thought it might be useful to turn to multilateral development banks um, because they've, they've been key players in project financing. Some people say that the banks are actually crowding out uh, private sector involvement in infrastructure projects. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I have thoughts about multilateral development banks and their role. And in mm. fact, it, it was an issue that we discussed and uh, it's really on the agenda of the B20. Um, and um, the particularities of, uh, about what can we do to improve the prospects, I was actually talking about Malawi and, and Madagascar, but maybe even Kenya and Tanzania, but I can broaden it out a little bit. What can we do to improve the prospects to enable greater private sector investment, particularly in emerging developing countries. And part of that is actually helping the MDBs realise that part of their role is actually to prepare an environment which enables the private sector to invest. And by that, it's investing and supporting in the capability built in those economies that gives people more confidence about investment regimes. And that is actually one of the recommendations that came out of the B20 Berlin. And it's pleasing that I think the World Bank is recognising that now and is doing something about it. The Asia Development Bank is doing something about that. What is interesting, I think, um, will be where the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank will play in this space, which is you know, the Chinese originated idea. Uh, and they have a different mandate to the World Development Bank they're, they're not actually looking for necessarily uh, environmentally sustainable projects. They are looking for commercially viable projects. I'm over, I'm over um, simplifying their mandate, but that's quite a different play. So it would be quite interesting to see how they uh, participate in this as well. I mean, because as you know, on one level, one of the great opportunities for participation for the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank will be to support the One Belt the Belt and Road Initiative. And we'll see how that plays out as well. The Belt and Road Initiative does span lots of developing countries. The challenge, I think, for us all, though particularly with emerging economies, to attract private sector, so rather than being crowded out by the MDBs, to attract the private sector, the MDBs do have to recognise that one of their roles is to improve the capability and the environment for private sector investment. And that, going back to, I suppose, my earlier comments around the World Bank, etc., I think that's recognised. And that was a specific um, 
uh, element of the, of the B20 task force that I was on as recommendations. I suppose you mean in terms of helping to educate or... Building or, legal capability. Yes. Building, yeah. least, or building the capability of public servants, building the capability mm. around probity on tender processes. Yes. You know, these things, you know, ultimately, enforceability of contracts is very important. Yeah. But also then building up liquidity. I mean, the, the, the way in which the capital markets will operate in some of these economies. The East, A East Africa, for example, operates as an East Africa community. Mm -hmm. Holding that together, having coherent regulatory frameworks across East Africa, I mean, this is Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. This is one of the big growth areas for the 21st century. So that, I guess, brings me to my next question. Uh, we do talk a lot about the need for regulatory consistency and consistency of implementation. We have had a lot of I suppose, test cases for this uh, since the GFC. There's been a lot of financial system reforms. Um, do you think that there are any lessons to be learned from the process that we've been through in the last 10 or so years? I, I think um, consistency is hard. Mm. Coherence would help. Regulatory coherence would help. And uh, one of the lessons we've learned is the danger of unintended consequences. So if you actually look at this issue about Reweighting capital risk, which comes out of the FSB project project process, so obviously the Basel III process. Mm. Uh, there are unintended consequences. One has been the way in which um, trade finance is weighted as a risk. Now, trade finance underpins SME-based economies, um, and SME-based economies, like principally if you look at the Asia Pacific Economic Community, one of one of its remarkable features is the dominance of SMEs and what's called micro uh, micro enterprises. Um, they oper often operate as very, very small trading plays or farms, or etc. The way in which they finance their um, trade exports is actually through trade finance. Mm. What we're seeing is that that's one of the consequences of the deliberations of the FSB is that those instruments are weighted at the same level of risk, oddly, as complex um, derivatives. And so what that means is the cost of them goes up and the access to goes down, yes. and so that is a squeeze on um, trade, and of course underpinning the Asian Pacific economic community is, it's a trading economy as well, and if this is the critical uh, component, of, I'm you know, mm. drawing a very big picture and, and with very broad strokes here, but the micro uh, SMEs and micro SMEs, or what they call MISMAs, it's an unusual feature of this region in mm. particular, the dominance of that as an economic component. Anything you do that impedes its, its capacity to grow will impede growth in, in Asia Pacific. So it's striking that appropriate balance between stability and growth. Well, it's actually enabling the private sector mm. to participate in those discussions yeah. as those regulatory coherence is sought, regulatory coherence is sought, rather than a bunch of wise uh, gnomes in Basel, in Basel, sorry, uh, sitting down and determining these things. There needs to be a lot of engagement with the private sector, more broadly based than just the financial services sector. So, giving business a seat at the table and then... Well, business has to earn the seat at the table as well. Yes. Yeah. So it has to bring ideas and it also has to act in the broader interests. But I think it's fair to say, and if you look at um, how the G20 has shifted over time, the business community understands that this concept of inclusive growth, which is critical uh, to actually enable political capital to be developed by leadership, because inclusive growth means that you're acting with the best interests of the whole of your community, 
is very important because it actually, without it, you're going to undermine your license to operate. Which is why things like the Sustainable Development Goals out of the UN are so critical. Though interestingly, Australian business is not fully engaged, doesn't fully understand what's going on there. Um, and that's, I think that's a challenge for the business community more broadly to understand that the Sustainable Development Goals could really be called the Business Development Goals because this helps political leaderships to actually get the political capital by focusing on things that will actually improve the lives of all their citizens. So getting on board with that is actually quite important. Well, John, Mel, thank you very much for your time and your insight. My name is David Hasty, and thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode in 2018, where I'll be joined by course construction partner Ben Davidson for a look ahead at the short, mid and long-term forecasts for Australia's construction and infrastructure industry. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.